But also being gay, I did definitely feel like this country's a bit small for me, mm. you know. So, so to see that the changes every few years, Ireland transforming before my eyes, it's not that I like all the changes, but it's, it's so exciting to see a country kind of being brewed up in this cauldron of modernity, you know. Mm. Um, just it, it seems to have happened so much more quickly than in other countries. And it's, it's just fascinating. Ireland Unfiltered. Stripped back. Intimate and honest conversations, together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Welcome to Ireland Unfiltered. Um, this week's guest is Emma Donoghue, whose new book, Akin, is in all bookshops now, good, bad and indifferent. Uh, the book is brilliant um, and it was really an honour to have Emma in the studio today to talk about writing, parenthood, uh, celebrity which she achieved when she wrote Room and it became an incredible success and then the film uh, the Lenny Abrahamson film took off as well Um, it was fascinating talking to her about that and it was just a really wonderful conversation with one of Ireland's uh, most brilliant writers so we'll go to that interview now before we do don't forget to subscribe to Ireland Unfiltered and all the usual channels and if you like the show please leave a review Emma, you're very welcome to Ireland Unfiltered. It's an honour to have you here. Um, Thank you. I feel the obligation to be particularly unfiltered. <laughs> no, that's that's the idea. You know, <laughs> just relax. We pretend that nobody's listening and we're just having a chat. Um, you're on a book tour. Tell me how that affects you and how it makes you, uh, you know, how you how you adapt to that. Well, funnily enough, I always write a lot on a book tour. Okay. You might think, oh, I should just publicize this book and don't worry about the next. But book tours, they pump up your ego mm. and then puncture the balloon over and over. <clears throat> you know, you do events of 400, events with two. Mm. And, um, you know, I find going back to the hotel room, getting out the laptop, carrying on with the next novel, that really helps me uh, stay steady. Um, is that tough, though? Because you're, uh, you know, when you're on the tour, presumably like you, you did an event in, in Trinity last night with a lot of people there. Uh, there must be a temptation to kind of ride the wave of success. and. So. Oh, you feel fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, it's so arbitrary. It's so much a matter of the luck and the weather and whether the bookshop is sort of miscalculated and thinking people wanted to come out on a Saturday mm. lunchtime or something, you know. So you have to try not to take it personally. As with reviews, you know, again, when you're on a book tour, reviews come in. And yeah, I remember going on one book tour and I got two terrible reviews in the New York Times that week, like two of them. Mm. So um, I remember feeling, you know, a bit like, you know, like you're shot and you have to run on, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. But um, on the other hand, you're just lucky to have a book tour, you know, publishers, tour writers less. Um, so it's it's a privilege to be even given that shot at going out and meeting the public. <clears throat> and I love meeting readers, you know, I, I love the, the individual feedback you get from them and the way they read your book so differently depending on what they bring to it. It's like the book hasn't really happened till it enters their head. So the book you're, you're promoting... Uh and I'm not just promoting this now because you're sitting in front of me. It's a kin. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Really uh, um, affecting. And um, I'm not going to give a takeaway, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's, I was complaining to you, wasn't I? Yeah. How I hate being asked to boil down the moral. Yeah. But, I mean, if you have a message for the world, Twitter is much quicker than writing a novel <laughs> right, is. Oh, yeah. You could have you done it in 280 characters if you were on just a quick, a hot take. Yeah, yeah. No, a novel is, it's a relationship. Like, you're spending years with the material. Mm. I got the idea for this one back in 2011 when um, me and my partner and our kids were sent to Nice for a year. Yeah. To, she was looking after students there and I just fell for the place and three years later we went back for another year. So right. this, this book is the only one I've ever done that's 
inspired by a place. And, um, you know, so that's, that's a long relationship with the characters. So you have mm. to have a fondness for them, you know, even if they might have some obnoxious traits. So, uh, Sorry, yeah. And you were in Nice. Were you in Nice then during, because like this is in the, the two main characters, Noah and his great nephew, Michael, are uh, go to Nice. And, and one of the things that, that has happened there is in the wake of the... Um, Terrorist attack. You know, the, the terrorist attack, the guy who drove down the promenade and killed 86 mm. people, that happened like 10 days after we left. Really? And it's funny, you'd think you'd have an ability to be truly sympathetic to massacres anywhere mm. in the world. But when it's a street you know and that you were strolling on and you can picture yourself there, you suddenly take it personally. Yeah. You suddenly feel that the, the invasion of public space in particular, how a street, you know, the promenade in Nice is just known as this space of leisure and it's always been so international. You know, centuries mm. of people have wandered happily along that street. So to have somebody drive down a turning a car into a weapon and killing people from many, many different nations and, and backgrounds and religions, um, it really hit me hard. So, so yeah, that was another reason I wanted to set this novel in Nice was a kind of a celebration of the city. It's a very odd city. It's, it's French, but it's very international. Um, it's, it's so, you know, touristy and shallow and sunny, and yet it's got so many um, historical um, remnants in it, uh, mm. you know, cannonballs literally embedded in the walls, um, uh, lots of little plaques about resistance fighters mm. fighting the Nazis. So I felt it was a very sort of sunny contemporary place, but that history was always tapping me on the shoulder. So that's exactly the the, the complex vibe yeah. I wanted to give it in this book. And that's the story without, you know, going into it too much. It is, uh, you know, there is there is a lot of that, that history in it, but then it's about, I guess, um, you know, how much do we know the people we love. Yeah, yeah. Noah has, has um, he's a, a French kid who was sent off to America as a small child and has grown up and been a chemistry professor there. But um, he's curious about what his mother was up to in the war and he's found mm. this handful of rather enigmatic little photos. So he, he decides to go back to Nice to look into it. But his journey is complicated by having a great nephew brought into his life by a social worker. He's never met this child before and he gets strong armed into bringing the kid along. So it makes his journey a much more interesting one, I think, in that he's having to look back through his whole family history and and so he sees in the child some of those same vulnerabilities that mm. he remembers from being a child during the war himself, you know. Um, so you get these echoes between generations. Um, it, it's funny, I never try and bring um, contemporary echoes into my historical fiction. But, you know, when you're writing about two different time periods, they always start to, ch- start to chime. Mm. You know? And he is, and, the, and the, the great nephew Michael, he is... A guy who's had a tough, you know, he's had a tough life. Mother in prison, yeah. father dead of, of opioids, mm. basically. Yeah, I tried to give him a very statistically common background mm. to, to explain why he would suddenly be desperate for a temporary guardian. Um, and, you know, in a way that that gave me that, you know, the sort of so-called war on drugs was a very interesting contemporary equivalent for World War II yeah. because obviously it wasn't the same kind of fight, but, you know, the same kind of issues come up about, say, snitching, you know, the mm. danger, dangers of, of reporting on your neighbours. Um, so a lot of these issues of, of World War II are sort of alive and well for this child who's barely heard of World War II, but he knows what it's like to live in a community where, you know, gunshots you know, fill the air yeah. at random times. That that feeling of fear. Yeah, and that feeling because, like, one of the one of the um, I find one of the sort of regrettable tropes of of the modern modern day, and it's it's always uh, peddled by a certain section of society, is this idea that the youth of today are sort of soft or 
are uh, you know not not as robust as previous generations, and they'll put up some. So you'll see on Twitter, someone will put up some picture of of seventeen year olds go off to fight in the war, and what seventeen year olds are doing today, or whatever, like that, as if as if that was somehow what people elected to do seventy years ago. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's nonsense. And actually, the the youth of today, what's really interesting about them is that you know in some ways they're like raw and innocent and ignorant mm. like kids always have been but because of the internet they know a lot yeah, like there's yeah. a lot they know to be worried about mm. so you know my daughter the other day she was convinced that the world is actually going to be over in 11 years time you right. know she's like we've got 11 years so they've got you know clouds hanging over them and um, probably even worse than the nuclear crisis um, mm. that hung over my childhood and of course they get on with having fun too so they have this kind of double vision and you know an 11 year old character like Michael in my book um, in some sense, he's like a blank slate. But on the other hand, you know, he's on social media, so he yeah. hears about everything. So he has a, a slight, you know, peculiar worldliness that he's, he's heard of everything probably in comic or meme form. Mm. Um, so that means that he and the old man, you know, the different forms of knowledge, you know, and the kid is a digital native. So, um, you know, the old man may have more formal education, but the kid knows how to do an image search. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So the, he sees things, frankly, more sharply, you know, they have, a, they're visually quick. There's a, there's a line in it that uh, I... I, I was going to ask you because it jumped out to me because uh, we were talking beforehand about, you know, how I feel once you're a parent, you can't read books like this that involve intergenerational stuff without bringing that, looking it through that prism. But it's a line when, when Noah sees the videos he's been watching, the beheading, he's been watching these videos and, and Michael says, if the world's like that, I want to be ready. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, how can you argue with that? You know, I mean, I'm really aware sometimes that I, I tell my kids histor- historical anecdotes and then I always try and give it some kind of safe, cozy ending, you know, like, mm. and then the allies liberated the camps. But increasingly, you can't, you yeah. can't fudge it for them. Um, and, and sometimes I feel, you know, that there's no more innocence and that they're going to hear about everything on the internet. So all I can do is like, give them as honest an account of, of things as I can. And do you feel concerned about like, as, as your, as your children get older, because, you know, a lot of your books, you know, as you said, like your kids have said to you before, you know, what did you write about before we came along? But they do. My they, novels are absolutely yeah, full of kids. Yeah, yeah, even like, you know, Michael as a character, he came into this one relatively late and then he took it over, you know. Yeah, it's right. really a lot of it is all about him. He's not the point of view character, but yeah. that's to keep him kind of enigmatic. And um, there's a strange power to somebody not being the point of view character in mm. your book because they can kind of keep their mystery for longer. So it, it lets Michael kind of keep his hard shell and then you start to glimpse this vulnerable and quite friendly little boy behind it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I worry a lot over, over my kids and what they know. I mean, my, my 15-year-old son, you know, we're constantly joking. He'll be like, oh, I've been on the dark web all morning, you know, <laughs> talking to the neo-Nazis. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's funny, I asked a mother what she was afraid of for her daughters and she said, oh, sexual assault, obviously. Whereas mm. with my son, you know, he's a white boy who's very into gaming and I'm like, don't go talking to the neo-Nazis. <laughs> but it Different is a world fears. that you kind of, I don't know how you, uh, um, you do control it or how you, and how much yeah. control you feel you can. And you can know, I've tried parental from. filters and so yeah. on, but they're so crude that then your son's ringing up and saying, I can't get onto the science website because you blocked me. Mm. So, so I pretty much take away the filters and just talk a lot to him about things, you know, okay. tell him to watch out for certain kind of keywords that the, the fascists use, you know. Um, I suppose education is the only protection. You know, yeah. it's like with sex education, if you educate them, they're less likely to end up pregnant in their teens. And I feel the same way about about the dark stuff on the internet, you know. Yeah, and is this because I I read you 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 know you said your mother told you that raising children was like shooting arrows. Your job was to 
launch them away from you. Now, we had Arthur Matthews on this show a while back, and he said something similar. He said he felt like, as a father, his job was to be like Harlan and Wolf, to, like, build <laughs> you know, build a ship and hope that it doesn't sort of turn into the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, and the you? paradox is, actually, that if you... Yeah, if you give them that kind of momentum, they do come back all the time okay. because they don't feel nagged. You know, there's nothing that turns a, an adult child off more than like, why didn't you bring me on Mother's Day? You know? <laughs> and so that's how you, that's how you were, because you were the youngest of, of eight children. Yeah, very favoured position, I have to say. I think my parents were quite mellow at that point. They had me in their 40s and everything right. was like fairly, they were old hands at all of this. Nothing rocked them, you know. Right. And so you didn't feel like it wasn't a kind of coming along... Uh, looking for it, like needing to kind of get some attention from them. You felt, you actually felt you had... No, because also the, the rate of, of childbearing had slowed down by then, right? <laughs> so I wasn't lost in a big crowd. Okay. I mean, the, she, I think they had five under eight at the start of the family, wow. you know, whereas we were, the births were slowing down by the end. So no, I think it was a great position and I got to do a lot of reading um, while my older siblings did much more useful household things. Oh, right. Okay, so, so you were the kind of protection. I think one. I was a bit indulged, yeah. I remember yeah. my sisters used to, like, take the top off my boiled egg for me, you know. I didn't have many skills. Wow. That's, you uh, wouldn't think it's that hard no, to were, open a boiled egg. It's amazing. I wouldn't imagine. That's not what I would imagine, uh, you know, <laughs> being the youngest of eight. To well, they were a bit malicious, too. I mean, they'd comment on my style choices, you know. <laughs> okay. I did, right. A lot of my style choices were things that four of them had worn, so it wasn't really my fault. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I read, uh, you know, a piece you wrote about your, your mother and her handing over oh, did you? Your di- her diary Yeah, she, she kept this kind of minimal diary for mm. about 50 years, yeah. And uh, like that was, she she died last year. Yeah, and I'm so glad I have them. She said I could not only, she said, you can have the diaries and feel free to use them mm. after my death. You know, she was very encouraging of, you know, the way writers are jackdaws and thieves, really. Okay. You know, um, and and her diaries, I find them so moving because they, they were sort of daily agendas, you know, like she'd say, get haircut, you know, buy oranges. But then she'd cross out haircut and say, rain too much, couldn't get into town. So, you know, you see the kind of real lived experience mm. kind of breaking in on the plans there. Um, and she'd have just vivid little notes about, say, every film she saw. You know, they went right. to films all the time. Even okay. when they were having lots of babies, they'd leave a neighbour listening out for them and they'd <laughs> pop off to the cinema. So, you know, we might think we are binge watchers now, yeah. but they were just as bad. And they didn't care what they saw. Right. They'd rush off and, you know, you'd enter halfway through a film and you would just watch it from that point on. That's um, fascinating. So you've got all these, and like, because she was ill for some time as well. Yeah, she had dementia. And to be honest, a lot of that has shown up in a kin. Not that anybody yeah. has dementia, but that feeling of, you know, our parents move beyond our reach and we think mm. of questions to ask them a bit too late to ever really pin down the answers. And I think a lot of people are starting to, you know, wonder about literally what to do with their parents' stuff even. You know, mm. new books about things like the Swedish art of death cleaning yeah. and so on. Um, like, like, what do we do with all this stuff? Uh, and how do we judge their generation, which faced very different challenges from ours? Um, and I, I do find as I get, you know, as I'm hitting 50 myself, I think a lot about my parents mm. and, and, you know, the choices they made. Or, you know, a day when I might be feeling a bit tired, I'm thinking, oh, my God. When, you know, they had eight kids when they were my age, you know. Yeah, I <laughs> Get know. up, there's a lot more to be doing. But it does change your perspective on on uh, on your parents, first of all, as you get older, doesn't it? Because you start realising the things they had, they had managed. Yeah. Uh, and I found it very poignant reading the books. I was going, like, that's what I, that sense of having questions for people who you assume have a permanence in your life. And in the book, you know, his mother is this, some, is this person who has a permanence in his life and his sister 
has died a year before. Yeah, many of the characters in the book are already dead and his yeah. wife talks to him in his head all the time and being a, a total scientist and atheist, mm. you know, Noah doesn't believe she can exist anymore and he says to her at one point, you're just an algorithm, you know, produced yeah, yeah, by my brain, yeah. you know, um, but that doesn't stop her chatting away to him. So yeah, he's he's kind of haunted by the dead um, and there's one scene where Noah's interviewing a man with dementia, like trying to get some mm. answers out of him. And it's it's so tantalising. You know, the man says things and Noah's interpreting them. And then he's thinking, no, the guy's just like nodding along, telling me what I want to hear. You know, so I think watching my mum with dementia, it, 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 it made me so aware of, of human consciousness as this like wonderful temporary phenomenon. Mm. And then you, you see it disintegrating at the end, just like you see a child learning words. And, mm. you know, it, it, it focuses you on, on the preciousness of things like memory because they don't last forever. You know, yeah. they say whenever we access a memory, we're actually slightly rewriting the file. You know, yeah. like when I write books with a lot of um, stuff for my kids in them, you know, entire arguments I've had in restaurants with my son have ended up in this book. You know, I, I found I, I could extrapolate <laughs> my role as a kind of a, you know, lecturing mother into Noah's role as a 79-year-old cranky <laughs> okay. professor very easily. You know, Noah really is me, just <laughs> slightly older and male. So anyway... When I've put stuff like that in the bo- into the book, I always mark up a copy for my kids so I can actually preserve a memory of which okay. bits are really them and which bits are made up. Because right. otherwise there's a danger I'll remember bits from my book and, you know, think that that was how my kids' actual experience was. Right. But when you mark it up, do they dispute what you've marked up as the real <laughs> They haven't version? looked at them yet. No, okay. This is awful late. You see, they're not interested yet. <laughs> okay. They'll be in their 50s going, oh, look, I inspired that book. No, they know the basic fact of how important they are to my work. They're very mm. proud of that. And that's something you've never, uh, like, you know, some writers would make a very clear distinction between what appears on the page and what, you know, their own life. But, you know, you have said, and we've talked about already, like, that they have informed so much of what you've written. Absolutely. But you see, I don't feel I'm exposing them as individuals. I don't put cute pictures of them on my Twitter, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but it is but that experience and your experience with them has. To be honest, I think some writers like to preserve the mystique of writing. Mm. You know, the kind of ooh, I was contacted by the muses. Yeah. And this is my magical writing. Whereas I like to really break down the process. You know, I think people find it interesting to see how you how you make the thing. You know, yeah. I would tend to emphasize craft and and the kind of hybridity and messiness of any literary mm. work. You know, and this one was inspired by um, like the painter Matisse and his daughter by stuff that happened to them in the war. It was inspired by my mother-in-law, who's French and was a child in mm. France in the war, having to be smuggled from Vichy, France to the north. Um, it's like inspired by literally conversations I've had in Nice, um, stuff I heard about the war. So, you know, every novel is yeah. composed of these many elements. And like that's, I always wondered about that with writers, why they feel the need to do. Is it because, because when you talk about it, like everything, there is... A, a discipline and a job that is at the at the centre of it. Oh, yeah, there's no need to mystify, yeah. you know. Um, it is, it's kind of magic enough that the whole thing comes together in the form of the story that can persuade other people that it's real. I love it when I go to events and people are putting up their hands and saying, I don't think she would have done that. Mm. And I think, this is cool. Yeah. I made this person out of words. Yeah. It's a figment. <laughs> and here you are arguing with me about what job she would have taken. You know, I think this is brilliant. The yeah. trick worked. So, so I don't believe that, you know, um, you know, discussing some of the techniques with people really takes away from the magic of it all. Mm. But why, what? But some people do clearly think that some do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you've been very like we we talked about at the beginning there. But that sense of remaining, you know, disciplined and true to the job you're doing, uh, 
is that is that is that part of that too? Because it is something you've had to keep as your anchor. And I suppose also I enjoy the hands-on work of it so much. Okay. Um, I think some writers, the whole thing is so such a sort of trauma, like they're desperate to find the next idea. And then when they do, it's such an intense process. They feel it cuts them off from the world. And then mm. the kind of huge relief of expelling this monstrous birth, you know. Whereas for me, it's more like, I love this job. I want to tell you about it. Right. You know? So it doesn't become, it's not like, it isn't that sense of, a penance when you're writing. Not a bit. I mean, of course, there are days when it doesn't go well, but mm. I call those research days, you know. <laughs> and do you do you manage, do you write every day? Every day I can. I mean, there's the odd day, you know. Mm. Like today, I would have thought I'd be busy with publicity all day, but it turns out there's a two hour gap in the middle. So, yeah, I'll, I'll flip open the laptop and get rewriting page 240. See, I know what page I'm at. Okay. What is, what are you working on? Uh, I can't say yet because it's not sold. Okay. You know, and I oh, never we'll assume my publishers want them because each of my books is such an oddball. Right. And, you know, the poor publishers never know what I'm going to throw at them next, you know. Okay. I have to keep making the books different from each other to interest me, to keep it all right. flowing. Um, but it means that they can't, they can't market me very consistently. Mm. Um. You grew up in a home of, like, your father was a, was a critic and a writer. Yeah, he's going strong. He's yeah, working yeah. away on a book on Henry James at 90. Oh, so oh. I don't feel very prolific compared with my daddy. Okay. You know? But it was the world, so when you say you were the, you know, you, you had it easy because you came into a settled home, but you also came into a, a home of books and writing. So this was yeah. a, a natural Yeah, path though, for you. you know, it didn't take all my siblings that way. It's funny, mm. you can raise people in a house of books, but doesn't that make them want okay. to read. You know, one thing that having seven seven siblings did for me is I realized, you know, genetics does not guarantee anything. Mm. You know, you can you can end up very different from each other. It's not predictable at all. No. Um or say, you know, raising my kids now, you know, I'm their biological mother and Chris isn't, but they have just as many of her traits as mine, you yeah. know. So so it makes you think a lot about family and what is the you know, what's the substance of it? It's clearly not just DNA. It's much more to do with the way we rub off on each other. So I suppose actually that's one thing that akin is all about. Mm. Is, you know, what what on what basis do you feel akin to somebody like what's what's the what's the thread between you? Yeah, what's well, this line about DNA? It's like t- shuffling two packs of cards, isn't that it? And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not rather it's just you don't get everyone the, the traits, which is how people often, you know, assume it. Oh, you've got. Uh, yeah. And yeah. people can be very deterministic about like the gene for, mm. there might be a gene for baldness, but mm. you know, there's not a gene for brilliance or, you know, one gene for being gay or whatever, you know, it's very complex mm. interplay between lots of different elements. And we know a lot more now about things like how trauma can actually shape the brain of kids. Yeah. You know, like, like one thing I came across when researching Michael's background is that um, kids in New York boroughs, um, this was a brilliant sort of meta study, um, if you give them aptitude tests, they, they do badly for a week after if there's been a shooting in their mm. area, even if they didn't know the person, they score like two grades lower, yeah. you know, so so fear, gunfire basically stunts the intelligence of kids around it mm. because of that level of fear. And I think there's some studies now, even the trauma going back generations kind of yeah. uh, affects, That's affects right. people. Yeah. And one thing I found in the novel was, um, you know, I was very interested in people who worked for the resistance in the war and a lot of them were left with lasting guilt just for having survived or not mm. having done enough. I mean, one story that comes up in a kin is um, this amazing couple, Abadi and Rosenstock, who a Jewish couple who hid 520 
29 children under Christian identities around Nice, you know, with the help of some Protestant ministers and the Catholic Bishop of Nice. And they saved 527 of them, you know, Mm. so you'd think they'd have been feeling good, but they didn't speak about it for decades. They felt guilty about not having rescued more. They felt um, guilty about having survived themselves. And they they felt terrible about like the way they'd had to really strictly drill the kids to don't use your old name. You're not that person anymore. Mm. You know, they knew that they'd had to do very harsh things to kids in order to keep them safe. And one thing they did, I found very poignant. They kept a record card of the the true facts of each child's life and photo and so on. And they preserved three copies of these files. They were desperate not to lose the identities of the kids. I think that showed a real... um, deep understanding that it wasn't just about keep the kids alive, you know. Yeah. It was about trying, you know, treasure their, their heritage and their connections as well. I know. It's, uh, no, that is another theme of the book, I guess, is and that sort of heroism and the... Uh, the kind of frayed edges of heroism. Yeah, and how you never know in advance. I mean, you know, I tend to assume, not that I would have been an active traitor or collaborationist, mm. but I think I'd have been what the French call an attentiste, like a wait and seer. Yeah. I think I'd have been, you know, timidly waiting and seeing. Because I look at how I respond to things like, you know, news of the refugee crisis mm. or the climate crisis. And, you know, I pretty much will retweet and then carry on with my day. So yeah. I don't think I'd have been a hero. So I'm fascinated by those who do in each generation actually decide to, to stand up. You know, if you look at the kind of moral authority of someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, mm. where does that come from? And it probably helps to be an oddball. And as she herself says very precisely, it helps to not care whether you're popular. Yeah. And is she somebody now you see sort of... Uh, penetrating with your children is she having an impact oh yeah she definitely is yeah she's kind of making it a a human thing for them Hmm. you know um mind you i don't find my kids generation sort of automatically very protective of the planet you know because they they like everything charged and electrical and convenient you know they never want to walk anywhere (laughs) (laughs) almost like can we get an uber (laughs) yeah that'll have to change but were you as a child i I saw you say that you you'd never been drunk never been arrested always interested (laughs) in adults and scored 10 out of 10 in tests so (laughs) boring little swat i'll never write a memoir of myself you know um i just i don't like the taste of drink which is weird for an irish person to just dislike it instinctively you know i've always been very driven and focused on what i wanted which was um you know to write so um i've really had my head kind of down and focused. Mm. Um, so that hasn't left much room for, you know, great adventures backpacking in India or anything. Right. I was always in a hurry. You know, it's as if I sensed that there were like dozens of books out there that I had to write because nobody else would write them, you know, That's, so I feel yeah. lashed on, you know. That's amazing. So even from a young age, you had that sense. Yeah, like I, I did a three-year degree at UCD because I was like, that's faster than Trinity. Okay. I'll go there. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems absurd. What was the hurry? But um, I just, and also I've, I've always got the next four or five books mm. like waiting for me over on the right-hand side of my computer screen, like queuing up, okay. saying, tell us, tell right. us. Especially as they're often about historical events or long dead people there's a feeling of being kind of badgered by ghosts you know but they also then all of them are informed because we we will talk about room in a minute but they are all informed by your own experience as well so whatever historical stuff you're going back to it's funny even historical fiction you put plenty of autobiographical material in there Mm. and people don't tend to notice because it's set before 1900 yeah yeah, but like when you talk about the wonder you said you one of the reasons you wrote that was because about again as you said like the biological you know connections with people that aren't biological yeah that you know, uh, Kevin Power introducing me last night, mm. he called it the, the, the motif of the duty of care. Mm. Yeah, that kind of psychic shock of parenthood as I experienced it. Yeah, um, yeah. 
that feeling of like, you know, what a bit like if war breaks out, will you be a hero? Yeah. You know, a child <laughs> is a bit yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> How will we rise to the occasion? Well, I always know? said, I always <laughs> felt like that when I remember the, one of the first times because I, I was working from home. My wife was on maternity leave and when she went back to work and I was working at home uh, and one of the first days I was left alone with, her, with my son. Yeah. And... Uh, I felt it was like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, you know. When <laughs> I was like, "How do we? How do we? How do we get through this?" You know, Together. he was flying around, and like you're just like, well, you know, it's just pandemonium. And, it, <laughs> and how it compresses time. So you know, if you get to the end of the day and you get them successfully down and asleep, you're like, "Wow, that's a high achieving day." You know, the child's a tiny bit bigger and still healthy. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, yeah, and there is peace now, temporarily. It's like it is. It's like, it, it is. Uh, if you can get any toys put away, you know, you feel like a total. Hero. And you know, that's been such an amazing shift in gender relations. We, mm. we tend to so often discuss feminism as if it's a pure battle, but I think feminism has ensured that like men of your generation mm. get to experience these close relationships with kids that are, often our fathers didn't have the same kind of hands-on yeah. involvement, you know. So I, I think, you know, questioning gender roles has been a huge plus for men in many ways, mm. you know. Well, no, I like it doesn't seem like uh, when you're involved in it, it doesn't seem like you would do you know that you're doing anything except what you would want to do like yeah, it's not yeah. it seems alien I mean unlike housework I think kids really reward the effort yeah, they do. you know you get the laughs, laughs if you put the time in you get yeah, the closeness and the spontaneous hugs yeah um I want to ask you then about about room and like you talked about the career of the writer uh was there any resistance then when it became the success it became. Resistance from me? From you to like what, what, what. I know we all love a bit of success, success yeah, I know. once in a while. But how did you keep, <laughs> but, uh, but how did you keep yeah. that discipline? You know what really that? helped is that when was my seventh novel for mm. adults. So I knew this was not normal. I really genuinely pity people who have a huge hit with their first book and they think it's going to be limos and champagne from then on. Mm. I'm thinking that is not the literary life. You know, are you kidding? Um, So I knew that the average publication day is a quiet day on which nothing happens. Mm. You know, you might get a congratulatory email from your publisher and that's it. So, you know, room suddenly was whoop-de-doo and they'd be ringing me up and telling me about some publicity coup or they'd be begging me to do a paperback tour. I'd never toured with a paperback. Um, And again, you know, it happened all over again with the film of Room. Mm. You know, so I had these two amazing sort of surges of success. And each time I really tried to appreciate it for the novelty, you know, like, Mm. oh, playing business class. You know, at one point they flew me to L.A. to do an interview with Aaron Sorkin and then flew me back again without my eating anything. And it was just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Incongruous. Um, so, so you know, now I'm back to the more normal life. I mean, I I have more readers, right? Yeah. But but still, it's it's basically it's all calmed down again, and I'm fine with that because I I love I love this life, right? So it's not like I was doing the whole thing longing for the limos and the mm. and the champagne. Um, but, but it must be nice. Though. Oh, it's fantastic, and just to feel you're reaching that many people who you yeah. hadn't before, and often a different whole different demographic. You know, people who would buy room in in you know Walmart or something, yeah. and who you know weren't in indie books bookstores buying literary novels um, mm. and reaching people in different countries. And then with the film, you reach all those people who often don't read books at all. Yeah. You know, so it's a whole other way of touching people. And you were very, like, you obviously you wrote the screenplay for the film. Like, was it important to you that it it uh, it, it, it stayed close to the, to, to the book? Not so much that it had to be close to the book, but it needed to not be, like, really voyeuristic and rapey. Because mm. if you write literary fiction that touches on 
rape. That's one thing. As soon as you start filming it, it could get dodgy in a whole other way. Mm. And I didn't want it to be all sappy either about the mother and child. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really guarding room from becoming a bad film because mm. the readers had responded to it so passionately. I thought I cannot let them down by selling the rights and then going, oh, whoops, look, they made a trashy film of it. Yeah. So I thought this one I'm going to guard. But you're guarding the spirit of it. Mm. You know, I was enthusiastic about changing loads of, th- right. loads of things in it. And things like, you know, the genius Lenny Abrahamson, he let me come into the editing suite for a couple of days. And I understood finally there was one scene I was always arguing to be included in the screenplay where Ma tells Jack that there was a first baby who was stillborn. I thought that was an important part of the story. But Lenny was never sure where to put it. And in the editing suite, I saw why. Because the film had this kind of, in the second half, there's this sort of momentum sort of coming up from the darkness towards the light. Mm. And I realised that a film, it's like a piece of music. You know, you don't suddenly stop and say, oh, and by the way, another sad story. You know, you can't put in little interjections in the same way. You know, it's got momentum. So I realised editing is done almost musically. It's not really about content. And that it would would wreck the vibe to stop and say, oh, flashback to another sad bit. Whereas books, the pace is much more readers can set it themselves they can rush through if they want if they mm. devour a book great but they can take their time they can read it over weeks or months yeah. um, it's not a performance based it's not a time based performance mm. whereas a film it, it has this kind of um, you know rushing timing to it you have to be aware of how long people have been sitting still so I suddenly got it about why a scene might not end up in the final film right. so again I'm working on a, an adaptation of The Wonder and of Frog Music mm. um, The Wonder I'm doing with Element Pictures again because I okay. had such a good time with them um, but I'm, it's, it's, I don't really don't see it as protective or guarding right. it's more like I, I enjoy the challenge of trying to, you know, relight the flame of this particular story, but in a totally different medium. Yeah. You know, with different advantages, different strengths. And being you know? excited for sounding, when you talk about the editing, they're being exci- it sounds like excited by the, how a different medium works. Absolutely. It's, it's so mysterious. I mean, yeah. you know, some people say a film is sort of written three times. There's your script, there's the shooting, and then the editing mm. is a whole other way of sort of cutting the story. And it's, you shouldn't see these things as attacks. You know, right. it's it's collaboration at its best. You know, there's a particular, you know, magic to the editing. And we were so lucky with the room film. We had um, Nathan, our extraordinary editor, on set all the time. So he was editing as we went along. So okay. we didn't wait till the end. Oh, really? So he'd like okay. make up a rough cut of the scenes we'd just been filming. Right. Which is so helpful. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it makes this sort of very rapid feedback loop. And you see, that's the kind of relationship that you'll get in more indie style cinema, you mm. know, where it's a small group of people and they're they're closely talking to each other day by day. It's not it's not like the Hollywood machine, you know, mm. where something moves on to post production for another six months. Yeah, and it's yeah. or again, I remember meeting a screenwriter who said to me, like, Were you allowed to contact Lenny? You know, okay. <laughs> it was like he was at my kitchen table. You know, it's a it's right, an intimate okay. little team. And that frankly just produces more more sensitive and, and nuanced results mm. than than the the big studio system. But so, presu- yeah, but presumably you must have then been pr- like working, w- waiting for the right person to come along. Oh yeah, to do yeah. It. No, I turned down lots of people, um, and then when Lenny, but you see, he adopted a technique nobody else used. He sent me this ten page letter. He like okay. put down all his cards. He was like, yeah. "This is the film I would make." Right. And I read it and I thought, wow, okay. you know, that's the film I want to make too. Oh, no, nobody in Hollywood, it would occur to them to expose themselves like that or right. show their ideas that you might then steal. You okay. know? He was just so honest and direct, you know. Where, what they're trying to give, they're trying to probably like boil it down to, you know, the, the, the takeaway, are they? Yeah, or, or even sort of like, oh, I could cast somebody really cool. You know, right. they're putting together a sort of package of talent okay. about your property, which is what they call books. Right. You know? 
Um, and Lenny was like, let me tell you the film I want to make, you know. So so his kind of honesty and, and vision, you know, made him the only director I wanted to work with, really. Mm. So, yeah, it was an incredible experience and I learned so much from him, you know. Do you wonder why... It, it it tapped into something at the time it tapped You know, into. I, I don't claim any credit for this. I think um, <laughs> a word that I learned from an editor around the time of Room, and I, I, I thought it was so funny, I, I put it in the book satirically, is um, zeitgeisty. Mm. I think I happened to hit on a very zeitgeisty story because there's something about, I suppose we got fascinated with stories of kidnapped women because it, it, it seemed to epitomise something about gender that we were becoming aware of, mm. but also because we live in such a mad, busy, overloaded world, mm. so connected, that these stories of somebody being in absolute isolation from the world fascinate us because it's such a contrast. Yeah. So I think there's something about the idea of, of, a, of a childhood sealed off from the world and then that moment of stepping out and encountering our busy, noisy mm. world um, that that fascinates people. So, so I really don't think I wrote Room with a better literary technique than any of my other books, I think I just was lucky enough to, to blunder on a really brilliant idea. And because I had two small children at the time, mm. you know, it, it fell on fertile ground. You said were. motherhood at that stage was a crash course in existentialism. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because also I'd had this fairly carefree life, you yeah. know, youngest of eight and being a writer, you know, it's nobody's dependent on you. So that feeling of like, oh my God, this creature in my arms, I have to stay awake now just because he's awake, yeah. you know. <laughs> Why did I sign up for this, you know? <laughs> But I was wondering, I was I, like looking at the book again this week, and I was thinking it also did sort of, as you say, like we go into our busy lives, but even more so now, it sort of foreshadowed this world where we don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, a world of sort of tormenting connectivity. Yeah, yeah, where you could be like, oh, there's tweets coming in from Japan, you know, I have to respond yeah. to those too. And whereas, yeah. you know, I, I remember I read an interview with a psych, psychologist or a chapter, a book by a psychologist who talked about parenting today versus parenting in you know in your, your our parents time and he said you know we think there are differences because now we praise our kids all the time good but job I, yeah <laughs> but actually he said that the thing that's still missing or still can be missing is attention because when you say that you're you're great you're saying it thoughtlessly the way you wouldn't you mightn't have said it 50 years ago yeah yeah that actually like the best thing to say about the child's picture is like oh why did you put the tree yeah. in you know yeah um and and in a way, well, okay, one thing I love about fiction is that it is time for all the conversations. So mm. so with Akin, I really relish the chance to do an entire week of the chat that these two have. Mm. You know, they're making the relationship out of nothing. It starts starts with nothing at all. And there's, in fact, quite a bit of, you know, there's guardedness on Noah's side. He's like, oh, God, this thuggish lower class child, mm. you know. And then the boy is like, who's this weirdy old man they're sending me off with? Um, but they get to have an entire week of conversations and you see that the pseudo parental relationship building line mm. by line, you know, and every time the kid like does something obnoxious and, and Noah's still kind of quite steady and kind in his response that's earning a tiny bit of trust yeah. you know so you're literally seeing a, a relationship grow line by line and um i suppose that for me is, is is the heart of the novel was like you know could these two find a way to to um to ally mm. you know like noah thinks he has it all to start with and that he's the you know rich and educated one but actually he's a sad old widower really and the kid is full of life even if he has a hard yeah. circumstances you know he may be living on food stamps but he's 11 you know so yeah. he's got that like I'm on the up and you're on the down you know <laughs> so so I liked the idea of this you know attempt to build a little bridge across two generations yeah you know? and that's what it's yeah and there are these connections and they both kind of Noah has had a very you know his wife has died 
but they've had a kind of quite a solitary life or their life was focused on each other an awful lot. And now yeah, and focused to, on work. Yeah. yeah, so actually, you know, the best thing that could have possibly happened to Noah is being sort of dragged into into modern times mm. with this child and into having to care about what happens to the child. Like, yeah. uh, there's a moment in the book where Noah decides, well, he better give up smoking because he has to stay alive yeah. now. He's needed. Yeah, the future, the line of the future is more urgent than the past, I think, yeah. which kind of captures that, yeah. that sense that we, you know, maybe parenthood accelerates that feeling or... In my case, I would say it dropped into people who other people might have grasped it instinctively. You need sometimes you need a little, you know, a jolt. To yeah, get it yeah. You know, I never, I never, I'm never trying to imply that oh, writers who have children are wiser than the others. Yeah, yeah. Not a bit. Some people seem to get to that wisdom on their own. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say, for me, parenthood was the education I needed. Yeah. You know, you're back in Ireland for a weekend. Is there a pressure when you're here for people to say? you know, which I'm going to do now, uh, like, what do you think of, like, how do you see the country? What's it, because you live in Canada. Uh, it is hard for me to give any, mm, you know, broad sweeping yeah, statements in, in, about in Ireland. 48 hours. I mean, certainly from a distance, I certainly notice the changes every time. I'm back at least th- three times a year. Mm. And I'm certainly, you know, aware of some particular problems. Like, you know, I, I saw Paddy Brannock and, and Roddy Doyle's beautiful film Rosie recently. Mm. I was horrified. I had not realised the housing crisis mm. had got that bad. Um so certainly when I'm home, you know, the Irish chat a lot and I, I just drink it in, you know, whether it's taxi drivers or, or friends or family, you know, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be soaking up what they say. And, you know, to see the really rapid changes in Ireland, things like the, um, you know, the, the, the freedom of choice referendum, mm. the, the, the gay marriage one, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, I cannot believe how much my Ireland has changed, you yeah. know. I mean, it's not that I felt I had to leave Cherka, what, 1990, but... Put it this way, everything was inclining me to leave, mm. right? I'd been kind of raised to leave in that there were no jobs. So there's yeah. a feeling of like, get your degree and get out of here. But also being gay, I did definitely feel like this country's a bit small for me, mm. you know. So so to see that the changes every few years, Ireland transforming before my eyes, it's not that I like all the changes, but it's it's so exciting to see a country kind of being brewed up in this cauldron of modernity, you know, mm. Um just it, it seems to have happened so much more quickly than in other countries and it's it's just fascinating take my cut, eyes off it. Uh, we've caught up anyway yeah and Irish mm. culture is, is so lively and interesting mm. I mean, Irish fiction couldn't be couldn't be more interesting at the moment you know yeah like what do you think when you look at writers like Sally Rooney coming up like it is it does is a testament to that it? yeah and it's very interesting how you know Irish writers tend to be quite specific about their their places and their mm. settings and so on they don't they don't write sort of pseudo international things but but stories can be very rooted in particular places like I'm thinking of say Kevin Barry or someone mm. um, and yet they can have this universal power you know mm. and I think Irish writers have this great sort of confidence in it as a literary tradition that manages to speak to the world while being true to the island mm. um, when you look when you look from afar at Ireland and you look at say what's happening you know you're you're looking at the US from Canada like is it still like uh, that sense of Canada as somewhere that is kind of uh, avoiding the kind of the the extremism. Well, it's not, it's not currently being run by a complete psychopath. So yeah, <laughs> looking good to me. Um, but you know, it could be taken over. We have a lot of conservative governments in our different provinces. Mm. Um, so so yeah, I'm very glad I ended up in Canada. I have to say because it's 
it's not just diverse, but it really celebrates its multiculturalism. You right. know? So in, in Canada, um, people are always asking where you're from, but it's not in a sort of exclusionary way because almost nobody is kind of the 100% Canadian, you know. Right. Um, it's a country made up of immigrants, yeah. you know, especially a city like Toronto is like over half immigrants. Um, so there's a real feeling that it's, it's, its cultural richness comes from its, um, you know, the variety of its sources. And so mm. it embraces writers like um, Michael Ondaatje or um, Rohinton Miss, Mm. And it's it's not presenting them as like ooh immigrant writers. It's saying yeah. these are Canadian writers. Which, Whereas Irish culture sometimes feels still a bit less um, less diverse than that. There's still a bit of a feeling of like who's old stock Irish, you know? Right, you think so? Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Um, but America as well. When you say that, like America would have until these, as you say, the psychopath took office. Like it would have also embraced that sense of being a country of immigrants. Yeah, but then it's also got this kind of God bless America mm. thing, you know, a feeling of like, you're here now, so be grateful and take part in the great American project. It can be very smug about its Americanness. Yeah. Canadians tend to be rather sheepish about their Canadianness, right. you know. Okay. But I like that, frankly. It means there's less of a, you know, Canada doesn't have this massive ego about itself right. as Canada, you know. And what, when you look back then and you look at Ireland, because the two things that are probably in the, in the, in the, in the kind of current affairs world at the moment that are obsessing people are Brexit. Trump and Brexit. Like, oh God, I just, I look at the Brexit headlines about three times a day now. Do you? you know, oh yeah, I'm just horrified by the antics in Westminster mm. that could lead to bloodshed in Ireland again. Because when you say like Canadians were, you know, that sort of sort of sheepish thing about Canadians, to me, one of the great things, or one of the things, I, I lived in England for a long time, one of the impressive things about many people in England was a kind of a sheepishness about being English. You yeah, know, or what, a ruefulness yeah, about ruefulness. the colonial yeah, past. Yeah, yeah, and, well, I think and, maybe countries should always be sheepish and yeah, ruefulness. Yeah, because we see what happens. Like, But that seems to have been, it's still there, but it's been obliterated by, by the other and side. And one thing things. that scares me about Brexit is that having lived in Ireland and then in England and then moving away to North America, I actually feel terribly European. Mm. You know, often, you know, when I feel a trait in myself, I think, okay, that's, you know, things like I, I love being around old buildings and and old elements in the countryside, you know, um, you know, dolmens and so on. They, they thrill me. So that kind of landscape, I think of it as Brittany. I think of it as Clare. I think mm. of it as um, Avery in England. Mm. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, last summer took the kids to, um, where were we? We were, yeah, we went to Newgrange. And then in Brittany, we were in very similar passage graves. And I, I, I sensed this European landscape that we were part of. Mm. Um, so the idea of, 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 some, of, of one of the islands, you know, recoiling from Europe and saying we are not that thing you know mm. that seems to me to be breaking up one of the things that I found um you know most most precious in in my lifetime has been the the alliance of small nations yeah. in Europe you know I think Ireland benefited so hugely from that you know when I was growing up it would be like oh a decent road oh Europe paid for mm. that yeah. so so the anti-Europe tendency in, in Britain just appalls and frightens me but they never grasped that they never saw that it as, as uh, well, like that Welsh village where it turns out the EU was paying for almost everything yeah. and everyone voted to leave yeah you know? in Cornwall where they all the farmers were being subsidized and uh, yeah yeah uh, but do you and I find nationalism very suspect because when I was growing up, nationalism was what caused you to shoot somebody in the knees mm. or, um, you know, throw a, a petrol bomb. So I just find that the banding of people together on this sort of fantasy of DNA, you know, like, yeah. oh, we are one tribe, we are one race, you know, let's exclude the other. I find it very dodgy. I think nowadays, you know, ever since... You know, international travel was invented. Mm. Most countries are a mixture. So so an appeal to, you know, oh, let our people have our own land. Yeah. I find it very, very it's very. It's a very simple message, though, isn't it? Yeah. And maybe when you talk about, you know, 
social media and things like that's a very simple message to spread. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I suppose more graspable, graspable than the kind of subtleties of, mm. you know, all our countries are a mixture. And what do you feel when you say you grew up with, with you know, what, what nationalism was? Like, do you think there's a danger when you say that Brexit could lead to bloodshed? And this, like, do you think there is a danger of, of unleashing or releasing some of those old forces Yeah, I do, well? because it's so recent, mm. you know, like, guns are, are buried, not actually destroyed. So, you know, it... it there are a lot of things that are precious uh, and relatively recent. So I remember when we just never went to Belfast, you know, mm. and then Northern Ireland, as it were, got, got opened to the world, you yeah. know, with such obvious benefits. And the idea that, um, you know, bringing back a hard border could suddenly throw away all that painstakingly mm. created peace. It gives me the shudders. Yeah. And your father's background was from, from Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And my, my father's father was yeah. a Catholic policeman in the mm. RUC. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's always good for writers to be in that slightly odd position of being, you know, the immigrant or the outsider. So even though I, I occasionally feel a bit culturally confused, you know, occasionally yeah. when my plane is landing, I'm like, hang on, where am I? Um, but I think it's it, it gives you it gives you some insight to be always, you know, like the Catholic police officer, always looking at things from a slightly outside angle. Yeah, you know? it helps. So there's that thing. It's one of the themes when we have guests on this show that a lot of them felt that sense of being an outsider in some yeah, way. Yeah. And while it's jarring and, and discomforting when you're younger, there is a benefit to it as you you know, enter into any kind of creative sphere. Yeah, and I'm so interested in like the subtle cultural differences, you know, because I've only moved from one English-speaking country to another, so it mm. shouldn't be that different. But there are so many differences. Um, I noticed, for instance, I've picked up the Canadian habit of expecting my waiter to be, you know, impressive and polite and efficient. And so in Dublin, I'm sort of like, where's the waiter? You know? <laughs> and I thought, oh God, I've become Canadian. Um, so, you know, in a kin, I'm constantly puzzling, puzzling over those tiny little mm. cultural differences, you know, and for the child who's never had um, uh, a passport before even, you know, he finds it weird, like they won't take his money in France. He doesn't know about different currencies yeah. even. Um, uh, you know, the shop's shut in the middle of the day. What's that about? You know, mm. and I've seen with my own kids, it's so educational to them to realise they do things differently here and you shut up and put up with it because you're mm. the foreigner, you know. <laughs> so so I think everyone should have that experience of, you know, being in a, a different culture and realising, you know, you don't get to set the rules for the world, you know. Mm. Emma, it's a wonderful book, really is. I really enjoyed it and it's been great having you here. And The conversation's been a real pleasure, Dion. Thank, thank you, you, Emma. Thank you. You're listening to Ireland Unfiltered, together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Really enjoyed that. Uh, book is fantastic, akin, and uh, Emma was a, a really fabulous guest. Before we go, don't forget to subscribe to Ireland Unfiltered on all the usual channels and if you like the show, please leave a review. Thanks. Ireland Unfiltered, together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Please drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie.